Welcome back to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast. This is part two of an interview with Anthony Werner, the publisher who has led Shepherd Walwyn since 1979. In this episode, we move from ethical economics and look into the other works in the Shepherd Walwyn catalogue. The jigsaw or tapestry that is SW today started with economic and social justice that Anthony learned from his father in South Africa. He began to express those ideas through the authors he worked with, and this led to him being found by other authors who explored these themes more deeply, perhaps the most famous of which is the author John Butler. That's where we begin, albeit with a slight detour into the letters of Marsilio Ficino. You men- you've mentioned John Butler. I had not, not really sort of published terribly very much in the sort of spiritual field before. I mean, the, the letters of Marsilio Ficino I had taken up from school, and that, that was, but if you could see that as both spiritual and academic. Uh, and um, so, I mean, but initially when we published the first volume of uh, the letters of Marsilio Ficino, I remember going round at Frankfurt, speaking to every American university press. Nobody was interested. Um, but now I think the, the, the letter, the, the translations have gained academic respectability. And, um, you know, it's quite an achievement to have published 11 volumes. Well, the 11th coming out this year. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. And, um, yeah. Um, and, it, and it, I think it, when I look at the when I look at the body of work that you've that you've supported as a as a as a publishing house and as a publisher, there is that 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 very strong strand of of, of social justice, but in a also a, a very Christian yes. sense as well. Um, yes. And with John Butler's um, work, and I know I mean in twenty twenty he's just he's gone from being this you know little old guy in a village in in Derbyshire, I think, isn't it, yes, in, and to being a um, an internet sensation which well I, I hadn't realized that because I published that book around about 2008 and it has been going fairly slowly and uh, he sold probably more copies he'd ordered you know, about 20 copies at a time and then order some more but he's somewhere along the line he met somebody who made use of, of modern communications and as you say, that's now made him a celebrity. But that was, you know, longer. I mean, the, the, the publisher can't carry on. You've got to move on to the new books. So I, I sort of, apart from whenever he ran, wanted, I would send him some more books. But then it's then it really took took off. Yes, but that hasn't led to huge sales. You mentioned he's an internet celebrity. Um, in terms of the, the wonders of spiritual unfoldment, I mean, we've been selling more than we did before, but I mean, we're not talking of millions. We're talking of, I haven't actually worked it out, I dare say we might have done 10, 12,000 copies, something like that, which is very nice. But it's, it, it, the celebrity that John's, I haven't really looked at any, I don't know anything in detail about it. Um, I mean, it's entirely sort of a, a modern media phenomenon. But on the other hand, there are some beautiful, in the early days, he'd, you'd get letters from people. There are two that he sent me extracts from, that they obviously touched people's hearts. 
and uh, the, the cover of the book, which you may have seen somewhere, is, has this p p picture of him standing inside a tree. It's almost like one of these Grimm's fairy tales, you know, mm. that this man had been trapped in a tree and then he's liberated. Yeah. And that's what seems to have happened in his life, is the sort of spiritual side has liberated him. Yeah. I mean, there's an old saying, birds of a feather flock together. That, you know, like attracts like. I mean, you've asked once or twice, how do I find authors? I think it's more a question as they find me. And so I've found a way of somehow surviving. It's not, not easy for a small company to survive because you don't have the marketing muscle. So thinking about you and authors then, and they find you, um, what is it that, what have you learned about helping authors get the most from themselves? Well, uh, I mean, one book we published was the, bio, was the, the life of the last, second last Empress of Russia, mother of Nicholas II, called Little Mother of Russia. The lady who wrote that was a very ordinary lady, a typist, working as, I'm not sure if she worked in a typing pool or anything, you know, she wasn't a high-powered secretary or anything like that. And she spent 19, 18 or 19 years researching this because her grandmother had been in St. Petersburg. And so she um, researched the subject of this Danish princess who married the Tsar, well, the, the heir to the th Russian throne. Um, and you know, was mother of Nicholas II, and she did did such thorough research that the Romanov family are still turned to her for advice. And in fact, one of the last things that she wrote in the very last page of the book, she mentioned that when the Empress was dying, she asked her two daughters to promise that when circumstances permitted that she, her remains would be reburied in St. Petersburg besides her husband. Some years after the book was published, Prince Nicholas Romanov came approached her and said, where did you get this information? So she told him. He then checked it out and then got in touch with Queen Margarita in Denmark. And they arranged for the, the reburial in St. Petersburg. So that was arranged between Queen Margarita of Denmark and I think Vladimir Putin was by then boss in Russia. So it's, I mean, that's one of the most interesting things that's ever come out of a book. Amazing. Yeah. So, so how would you help someone like that? How would I want? How do you help? So an author, so so this lady, she's 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 actually she's got no, there's no. Rational no reason, yeah. No, she had no track record, and I think what we were lucky was that Hatchards had somebody who was very keen on had a royalty section in Hatchards, and we had an office in Charing Cross Road, just or just across the road. So I was having to go around with twenty copies. This was not exactly in the nineteen nineties. I think we published this book, so I was having to trot around to Hatchards with 20 copies of the book every, you know, at least once a week. Um, so they sold a huge number and that once, uh, once that got going, uh, we did ended the paperback, 
but it established her reputation. What do you what do you look for in authors? I suppose integrity. But they're, they're not they're not trying to sell themselves. They they really they've got something genuine to say, and it is interesting in the case of Little Mother of Russia. You know, the, 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 the Russian royal family still turned to her for advice. She's now the sort of the expert on the, on the royal Russian royal family. And she, 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 she and her husband have lost their home because they couldn't afford the mortgage. So she's, she, she, she's you know, a very ordinary person mm. in that sort of way. And what other authors stand out for you when you look at all the, look at the people that you've worked with? Well, one of the most interesting things that we had was um, the Who's Who in British History series, which was um, proposed to me by, well, he'd done it. Um, I've forgotten which company did it, was it may have been Oxford, even Oxford University Press, I've forgotten. Some major company had done this Who's Who in British History series, and they dropped it, and he persuaded me, he was, he was a housemaster at Harrow, and he persuaded me to take it on, and that went on for, I don't know, over about eight or nine years it took us to bring out the eight volumes. But we've managed to sell rights and that in America, and and even the um, something society they do upmarket books. I can't think of their name at the moment. Anyway, they they gave us a big order of three thousand pounds and three thousand copies of all eight volumes. This is much huge order, about a hundred worth a hundred thousand pounds. Well, the printer wasn't good. our credit that was way beyond our credit limit. So anyway, we did a deal that the what do they call it? Nanny came to mind. Something killed. They they paid for the paper. Anyway, so when they were printed, the the printer invited me round to lunch at a Swiss restaurant. Swiss restaurant to say thank you for this huge job, about a hundred thousand pound job. And um, I gave him the cheque and about, about, I think it was about eighty-nine thousand pounds. And uh, my bank rang me up about three weeks later and said, do you realise you're sitting on eighty-eight thousand pounds in your account? Do you want to do something with it? And I suddenly realised, so I rang up the man and said, what's happened about the cheque? Oh, I've left it in my suit, I forgot to bank it there. <laughs> Having me about there, we had such an interesting lunch that he forgot to bank the cheque. I mean, you know, publishing is full of extraordinary things that happen. You know, there they were worried about, the, you know, could I afford, possibly afford such a, an expensive book? Yeah, incredible. And I've sold American rights and that. So yes, I mean, but again, the, the basic idea of that was a teacher of history, who wanted to have the idea was that well, he quoted one of his one of the volumes. Um, Disraeli makes the point that history is really about people, so that was his idea: is to do British history through biography. That's an extraordinary amount of research required to do that. Right? Well, that's right. There were about six authors involved. Wow! Uh, it was Black Blackwells were the original publisher. And they, they dropped it after a while. Wow. 
So I know we've got to um, we've got to wrap up um, in a little while. Um, if someone was starting out today, what advice would you give them? Like, let's say that there's a there's a there's a younger Anthony coming up yes. um, at university, and he's just about to, I want to say, get on the boat and come here somewhere. But it'd be a slightly different form of travel now. But um, what advice would you give someone starting out? Well, I think probably your first your, your first thing is you need to work for another company. I mean, I had. Uh, two periods at Oxford University Press and at Pergamon Press and then I was working for Dorling Kindersley, no it wasn't Dorling Kindersley, it was one of the other companies like Dorling Kindersley in London and that was where I, when I was working, when I was made redundant at Oxford University Press, they, they cut back the cartographic department. So I came up to London to, Mitchell Beasley was the, that was the company. And so I worked there for a year and then that's when Christopher Shepard Warren contacted me. So I think you've got, to, well I mean, what I had a lot of experience on the mapping world but I had no experience of general publishing was uh, Christopher had some, he'd worked for some other company before and I think he started a, the company when he inherited some money. So I think you, you need to have the, a, some, some experience um, and I think in a way, well it's interesting, we were sort of, before I was made redundant at Oxford University Press, there were three of us who were trying to set up a company, we were, we were so bored with so little work to do at Oxford University Press, but we couldn't come up with a good idea, so, that it, was, so it was out of the blue that I was recruited when they heard that we were made redundant, somebody from Mitchell Beasley got in touch with the people at Oxford University Press and offered jobs to us. I was the only one who was prepared to leave Oxford and come to London. So that's how it came about. And, and any more advice for, for a younger Anthony starting out today? Get some experience, work for other people, so you're, I guess you're learning the industry. Yes. That's right, and I mean, I, I had no mar no experience of marketing because I've been always, and always have been very much more editorially inclined than marketing. That's I, I, the part I personally find more, more difficult is the marketing, in the sense that uh, one doesn't really, it's a kind of last stage of the book, as you know, you, you get the author, you edit it, you print it, then you've got to sell the damn thing. <laughs> hmm. Well, I mean, I think you've got to be interested in in knowledge, really, because, I mean, what books are, are stores of knowledge in different ways? I mean, yes, they're also entertainment and more novels and more, but a novel is an interesting way also of exploring themes. So it's very much about the world of the mind. Um. You know, one one thing that when I was looking at all your work and, and reading um, George Curtis's book, um, what's your what's your current level of of optimism, pessimism, pessimism about everything that's going on at the moment? Well, it's a question of yes. I mean, you can see one assumes there's an element of goodwill at least in in their efforts. But if you're advised by people who've read PPE at Oxford or somewhere else, 
you're going to you're going to ignore land and uh, you know our bodies everything comes from the land so this is the fundamental error that there's a, there's a huge blind spot and therefore everything else doesn't work hmm. and how have you how have you maintained your your work ethic and your persistence and your perseverance in in, in you know cra crash after crash and um, mistake after mistake that that it, on paper is is a it's a very simple solution. It's not easy, no, but a very simple solution. Yes. Well, uh, I mean, I, I suppose I was fortunate. I was born into a family with with some wealth. Not that there's much left, but that's all gone into the company. But. Um, that made that gave me a degree of independence, and I remember thinking, uh, I'd rather look after the money myself than leave it to somebody else to look after. And um, so, in that sort of way, one was fortunate that one had one had did have some capital, which not everybody does have. No, because uh, because it becomes. I mean, I've, I've bought and sold three houses. Each one, each time I've sold it, well, each two two of the times to rescue the company. So it's, yes, it's not easy. So, so how have you done it? How do you, so you've, you've, you've faced near bankruptcy, you've, you've sold your house twice. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and there's, there's certainly, and you came in because the previous owner had run out of money. Yeah. And so you, you, you put up your, your inheritance and, and yeah. your wealth. And you're still going, and you're yes. still coming to the office at, in your eighties. Yes. So what makes you keep going? Good question. Well, I suppose I mean, it's just one's nature, in an interesting way, uh, when you think about it, you care about some things and, I mean, well, coming back to the lady who wrote the book about uh, the uh, Russian Empress, uh, you know, I look at her and think, why, why did she spend 19 years doing this? In fact, it's one of the most interesting questions to ask an author, why have you done this? You know, some, some, I mean, at the moment we've been offered a book about the oil industry, and fun enough, he, he was one of the Penguin companies were very keen, but they were then told that the editor who's so keen, he was told, oh, well, you can't take on somebody who's not famous. So the big companies are only interested in famous authors. But famous authors aren't the only ones who've got, uh, got good news, have something really worthwhile saying. Mm. So I think it's it's trying to find the things that the people who really have something genuine to offer, and I suppose what it all comes back to is there's there's something out there called the blue, from which ideas come and and which with which we can sometimes more easily and sometimes less easily communicate. Mm. Anthony, thanks very much. Okay. Well, thank you.
I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I did meeting such an engaging, purpose-driven man. I'm only just beginning to appreciate the depth of Anthony's vision. Each book I've read that he's published offers another intriguing element, and I can see that they're all connected. There's a model of entrepreneurship from a professor in the US, Sarah Saravathi, and she calls it effectuation. She uses an analogy of quilt making as a way to describe how entrepreneurs create the future by taking lots of different pieces of reality, different patches, and sewing them together to create that desired future. Like one of those beautiful patchwork quilts that are popular in the USA. Now given the economic challenges he faced doing this, for example selling, having to sell two houses to keep going, I think we'd better see his work as social entrepreneurship. But for me there's something I wish I'd seen more of in the last few years. Anthony had the resources and chose to spend them supporting a worthy cause. He lived a life that was difficult at times but also of tremendous contribution. And had he not supported authors like Fred Harrison, Brian Hodgkinson, Phil Anderson or John Butler, my life would have been much, much worse. I don't think I would have been able to see through the lies I was being told by economists if it wasn't for those authors, and if it hadn't been for someone like Anthony who had taken a chance and published them, simply because they needed to be published. What I wonder is why do we think the best use of the wealth we create is to simply buy things? Why not use that wealth to feed ideas that could help all of us? It's clear that there are people doing that now who support the prevailing economic view and not one that's rooted in economic fairness. My own take on Anthony's work is that the quilt he envisions is large enough to cover the world and that he's going to need our help to bring it all together. And that's why I'm so excited to be doing these podcasts as we get to looking more detail at those pieces. I'd like to remind you though that his vision only begins with ethical economics. That's the most tangible output of having a society that's actually based on economic fairness and social justice. Just remember that economics is just the beginning. There's no point having a fairer society if we've forgotten how to truly live in it. So until next time, thank you for listening and keep reading.